Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome once again to Madame Perry Salon, the podcast that loves you, the podcast with seriously more celebrities than the inauguration, and we are happy to be here for you. Um, we've had so much fun, and hey, listen, thank you once again. I know I say this, but it's, it matters every time. Uh, thank you so much for subscribing to whatever podcast platform uh, you prefer for your podcast listening pleasures or for uh, leaving reviews and such. Thank you. I checked my stats yesterday. Had this huge spike. I thought there was a mistake, but it was like almost a 300% jump. And so I thought it just, it, well, it just felt good. So thank you all so much. And because of that, I'm able to keep bringing you really good guests and interesting shows. And I got some surprises coming up soon too. But also, uh, if you remember what was last week, last week, a week before, when we had Don Most, or you know him as Donnie Most, or you might still think of him as Ralph Mouth from uh, Happy Days, uh, you know, when Ralph, Ralph, now listen to me, uh, when Don Most was on here, he was talking about a couple of things he's got on Amazon Prime and something on YouTube, and he's got more things, more shows coming up. But one is a series called Viral Vignettes, and he and Robert Wool. Uh, did one of them, and it's just two old men on Zoom, very funny. And then also he has on Amazon Prime, I think it's the pilot for something he's done where he co-stars with his old Happy Days alum, uh, Anson Williams, and they had not acted together until this, but it's called Harvest Time. So look that up. Also, uh, his CD, Don Most Sings and Swings, Get that, too, if you love swing music like I do, uh, and you know I do. Get that. He's such a great singer and a, and just a super nice guy, too. Also, Bruce Sudano was on the very next night, and he has a new EP. It's called Spirals, Volume 1. And if, if you don't know Bruce, and you should, he's written some of your favorite songs ever. Uh, he's written for several artists, but he also wrote a lot with his uh, with his late wife Donna Summer, and also worked on the Donna Summer musical last year, which we were hoping was going to get around town. Uh, but of course, we all know what happened. We're all locked in, so they can't they can't tour the show, can't do the show. But anyway, Bruce Sudano, um, CD Spirals Volume One. Get it? His voice is just as strong and warm and wonderful as ever. And his songwritings, he's lost nothing at all. He just gets better and better. So get that. And we've got more fun things coming up in a few weeks. But as I promised, this is probably one of my, if I had to pick a top favorite book uh, this year, this author may be it. And that's a dangerous thing to see on the air because you could go back and listen. You can hear I haven't said that about anything else. But the book is called Music is Power is 
oh my God, I think this might be his 13th book, 12 or 13th book. He's also written a couple of books of poetry. He's worked on television. Uh, he's a teacher. He's a consultant, literary consultant. He has several awards and honors of New York Festival's Radio Award. Uh, he has three communicator awards, Stage Theater Festival in Dallas for Expressly, L.A. Press Club, National Entertainment Journalism Award, uh, several fellowships. He's done a lot of work on TV and film, popular journalist, radio. You know, if I keep on talking, I'll use the whole show, so I won't get to introduce him. So let me just say, welcome <laughs> back to Madam Perry Salad, Brad Schreiber. Well, I'm delighted to be here. It's very dangerous to read my whole resume on the air because I'll become more arrogant than I already am. But but I thank you, and it's a delight to be back and talk to you more about some of these remarkable songs that, in some cases, actually changed American history. Yeah, no kidding. And with this book, um, and, and how long did it take you to write? Music oh, power. 10, 15 minutes, you know. If you concentrate, you can work very quickly. No, I'll tell you the truth, Madam Perry. It's, it's kind of amazing. It takes so much time when you have an agent submitting work. Editors say they're interested, then they don't make a bid. You're waiting for them. The contractual stuff going back and forth with the lawyers. I can almost write a book faster than I can sell one. So I would say that this book took me about eight or nine months. And I had already done a lot of research about all the different kinds. I wanted to do every genre of music from hip-hop to Broadway. And um, go 100 years back, you know, start off with uh, the, the Union songs and bring it right up to Green Day and, and you know, hip-hop and, and all that. So um, nine months, nine months. And... Um, it was a joy. You, it's kind of like when you're writing in flow, as they say about writers. Have you ever heard that phrase, you're in flow? It means the, the work's just coming out of you. It's going fast. It's what you want. You don't have to revise it. Um, when that happens, it's like being high. It really is. It's a, it's a good and healthy, cheap high. And um, you're, you're like in another universe writing. And then you step back and go, wow, I'm almost done with this thing. Mm doesn't always work that way, but when it does, and Music is Power was like that for me. It sounds like it's quite a, quite a high. Um, and this is published by Rutgers University Press, am I correct? Yeah, you know, I'm glad that you bring them up and give them props, as the kids are wont to say, because uh, mm-hmm. they deserve it. Uh, they, um, not only just because they published my book isn't all, they did something that most publishers don't do, it's usually the author's responsibility to um, license photos. And they wanted a lot of photos, and I said, no, boy, and, you know, if you want to, go ahead. Otherwise, I don't think we need any. And to their credit, they, they found some amazing photos of all these artists, from, from the dead Kennedys to Peter, Paul, and Mary, and everything in between. There's some fantastic photos, some in color. I think there are five in color, and and more than a dozen black and whites in addition. Well, well, yeah, that is that is impressive, and that is a wonderful thing because I was going to ask you with all the the legal things and, and licenses and so forth with a book of this of this magnitude, um, mm. 
when to ask, you know, were, were they able to help you at all? And apparently they were, they did. So that's magnificent. Yeah, we um, all want as little as little interaction with lawyers as possible. I think. Sorry to all the lawyers out there in Madam Perry's uh, listening circle, but uh, you know how it is. Uh, we don't we don't like to be sued, and we don't like to go back and forth and and negotiate if we don't have to. And so Rutgers has been a great partner in this. The the full title "Music Is Power." Full title is uh, "Music Is Power: Popular Songs." Social justice and the will to change. Um, popular song, social justice. You know, it was you see, what today is May 13. Last week was May 4th, which was the 50th yeah. anniversary of Kent State Massacre. And of course, as soon as the as that all popped up on on all, everybody's social media and TV, you know, my mind immediately went back to just reading your book recently. Yeah. And uh, talk about that. Well, that hit people it, in a lot of ways very hard. So yeah, yeah, they did. Um, the, the most of those National Guards people at Kent State in Ohio were new recruits, and they got backed up on um, sort of an incline on the campus of Kent State, and they just panicked. Even though the kids had had you know nothing except signs and maybe a couple of rocks, and they were the ones with rifles and bayonets, and they just flipped out and opened fire and four people were dead. And of course, in Music is Power, I talk about how quickly Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young both wrote and released their famous song, Ohio, which is famous for the refrain, Four Dead in Ohio. But literally, literally, uh, there was a Life magazine that that was um, spread out and David Crosby was uh, in Northern California with Neil Young, and he said, look at this amazing photo of what happened at Kent State. we got to do a song. Oh, yeah, let's do a song. Where's Nash and Stills? Oh, they're down in L.A. All right, well, call them up and tell them to fly up here. We're going to record a song. And um, remarkably, the song was written that quickly, and probably within two weeks, they had that song being distributed to radio stations in the U.S., and it had a huge, huge impact, not only because of the quality of the song, but how fast they distributed it. Which was, a lot of people don't know, that was a big deal back then, because now you can just do it at your home studio and it's out, or to say they drop it. And, yeah. uh, but back then it was a lot more complicated process, wasn't it? Yeah. And 1970, uh, which, you know, 50 years ago, is also kind of the anniversary of other interesting socially conscious music. You know, Marvin Gaye, uh, What's Going On, an amazing suite of music that he did. He was he was a beautiful crooner. I mean, he had just such a great natural mm-hmm. voice. But he got tired of singing love songs because a lot of his friends either went to Vietnam and were either killed or injured or his friends knew of people who came back from Vietnam and were just shattered mentally. And Marvin Gaye said, ah, you know, I've got to write something about what's going on in the world. And so what's going on was, was not only a comment about racism and war, but it was one of those early songs, madam, that, that actually talked about the environment, you know, which in 1970 <laughs> there weren't other rock artists who were recognizing that we're, 
ruining the planet and that we have to think about the future and, and ecology. Mercy, mercy mm-hmm. me, you know, the ecology. And there's Marvin Gaye 50 years ago uh, writing about it in a very beautiful, elegant way, not a harsh, screaming way. So it was so unusual. I guess that's the last thing I would say about Marvin is he had a big heart and he cared about the future, but it didn't sound harsh. It sounded as lush and as romantic and as beautiful as his R&B music. A magnificent skill in itself. Um, Because he also, yes, as I understand, he also wanted to sing other kind of music and not just do the same formulaic stuff, but he wanted to go Mm. more like Bobby Darin or Sinatra and sing, you know, and of course he had to... Barry Gordy fighting him, and and then he had yes. all of these other subjects that he wanted to write. But again, it's, you're right. It's, it does seem to me more like a love song to the earth. Like let's 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 stop Beautiful. and think about what's going on and what we can do to stop it. Beautiful. Yes. Yes. A love song to the earth. Well said. And um, I'm glad you brought up Barry Gordy. You know, the head of Motown who was really only interested in money, and um, mm-hmm. he was afraid that politically motivated or socially conscious music um, would not sell. And all of a sudden, Marvin Gaye showed, oh, yeah, it can. And then you had, you know, The Temptations and other bands doing stuff. Uh, Ball of Confusion was one of my favorite R&B songs in the 70s. Uh, these, these are oh, songs gosh, yeah. in a way that have something in common they're songs that are taking on a whole bunch of different problems they're not just singing songs specifically about war or racism or or this or that they're recognizing we got a lot of problems so you know i'm waiting for people to put out those pandemic songs and and talk about you know how we have to pull together um we've been through bad times before and and we get through them um so that's what that's what I picked for your show, madam. I picked songs that I think really represent many different issues all together in one song, which is really hard to do in the craft of songwriting. You know, Brad, here's the interesting thing you say when you bring this up, like the Marvin Gaye songs, and then when the when that was successful, the Temptations, the Ball of Confusion, and I think at the time, um, you know, Ball of Confusion, that's what the world was today, and it was going to, um, uh, mm-hmm. all the destruction going on. As it was, and then I think they also had one close to it, and maybe on the same album, Runaway Child, Running Wild, about, uh, mm-hmm. you know, youth um, with a lot of unrest yeah. and a lot of confusion at the time. That was a good and, song. It, it didn't sell as much, of course, but it was also a, a, a wonderful song. And there aren't a lot of songs about kids, you know, having problems with their parents and feeling lost in the world. That's a, that's a timeless subject. That's always going to be. The young generation is always going to have trouble finding its way in the world. So it's an important song, and, too. And then well, you just mentioned that about, you know, looking forward to songs that we'll have. Because, you know, songs have come out so quickly, you know, parody songs about a pandemic, a pandemic. And then some people have some original songs on washing your hands or, um, yeah, you know, the song, Brad, you know, the song Jolene, Dolly mm-hmm. Parton. Yeah. And you know what it's about? Uh, Jolene, don't take my man. Oh yeah. Don't right. Take right. My I man. remember. Don't, 
don't take them just because you can. And then right. uh, a few days ago, I saw a duo on, on YouTube that did it, and it was Jolene, because they've been in quarantine or in isolation. Jolene, <laughs> please come take my man. Please come and get him, Jolene. <laughs> I hope Dolly doesn't get angry. <laughs> Dolly seems to have a pretty good sense of humor. It's, it's, I, I mean, I don't know her personally, but she does seem to have a good sense of humor. So I think she probably, yeah, well, that's that's. They wanted not think of that first. Uh, the series on PBS, uh, you know, country music was just great, and um, you know, good example is uh, I guess we mentioned last time Jeannie C. Riley, you know, Harper Valley PTA mm-hmm. sold two and a half million copies from a, a female singer who wasn't even known in the country music establishment, but she did it with a, no, she you know, a sly kind of wink of the eye and talked about, you know, people were ju- judgmental, and, but she did it in mm-hmm. a charming way. So sometimes you can get a lot across if you have a a little bit of humor rather than yelling at people and wagging your finger in their face. And Jeannie did it's that the, uh, with Harper Valley PTA. What is it all in the delivery, how you, how you wrap it up and deliver it? You know, um, another song at that time, and when I asked you about this song, I'm also going to ask you too about the writer. I remember with the Vietnam War, there were other songs. I remember my girlfriend had more records than I did, and I remember she had uh, uh, Green, uh, Green Berets. Ballad of the Green Berets. Postmarked. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ballad uh, of the Green Beret, and then one about this letters postmarked Vietnam. And then there was also one uh, Barry McGuire recorded, Eve of Destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the... That but it was one, written by P.F. Sloan. Yeah, Phil Sloan. This, uh, in that chapter, it means a lot to me. By the way, there are two women in that chapter, um, you know, Janice Ian and Leslie Gore, who are along with uh, P.F. Sloan. This one means a lot to me for two obvious reasons. Once you start reading the book, you'll see that I knew P.F. Sloan here in Los Angeles before he died. And the reason I knew him is one of my oldest friends, S.E. Feinberg co-wrote Phil's memoirs, What's Exactly the Matter with Me? And they talked about how that song went to number one in 1965, and yet some people criticized it because it was condemning everything, you know, the, you know, the church and its hypocrisy, the Vietnam War, racism, consumerism, the, the race to outer space. He managed to get all of that in this song that Barry Maguire sang and popularized. And believe it or not, you know, people like Lennon and McCartney and Simon and Garfunkel were saying, oh, it's such an obvious song, we don't like it. Well, you know, I think, the, I think musicians should stick together and not fight with each other. And uh, he was a very, very talented singer, songwriter, um, arranger, producer. He did everything. And, um, you know, it went to number one, as did Sergeant Barry Sadler's um, Ballad of the Green Berets in the same mm-hmm. era. So you've got half the country. Does this sound familiar? Half the country feels something mm-hmm. strongly. The other half feels something strongly. You know, half are saying, you know, get behind our soldiers in Vietnam. And the other half of the country is saying you're killing our boys and we need to bring them home. And both of those yeah. songs spoke to their audiences very effectively. Well, they did. Um, Phil Sloan, he 
he had kind of a rough life, didn't he, toward the end? Yes, he, he was mistreated. He was mistreated. Literally, his life and his family's life was threatened by Dunhill Records executives. And that's in his book, What's Exactly the Matter with Me, that he wrote with my pal Steve Feinberg. And it's just horrifying. He could have gone on to be you know, a superstar singer-songwriter. But um, inevitably, he had a major mental breakdown because of, you know, the threats, and he couldn't get out of his contract. Did, did I mention the last time we talked, madam, that Bob Dylan so loved Phil Sloan's Eva Destruction and all the other songs he sang that they met up in Los Angeles, and Dylan started playing him like an acetate of, of the music he was going to bring out soon, and Phil loved it, and Dylan was so appreciative that Phil Sloan got what he was doing, that he said, you know what, man, you want to record any of my songs, just mention it. And Phil Sloan said, yeah, I'd like to do the Ballad of the Thin Man. And Dylan said, you got it, and he gave him the rights. And that mm-hmm. tells you something about the respect that he got from some people. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the others kind of drove him to a mental breakdown, and then he came out of it and did some other songs before we lost him. Yeah, that's a, that's a rough rough times there. Um, well, let's talk. Do you want to talk more about that era in songwriting, or or um, or just well, a little bit past about, that? I think. Let's talk about the modern era too, because I want people to know that, you know, the songs and music is is power. They're not just from the '60s and early '70s. You know, the Dixie Chicks no. uh, have a a great section. In the book, um, the song Not Ready to Make Nice talks about how they got death threats just because they said that they were unhappy with George Bush and the invasion of Iraq. And I guess the the lesson to be drawn from this is sometimes you sound unpopular when you have an opinion, and given enough time when things go wrong, all of a sudden... Oh, looks like you knew what you were talking about. So a lot of people who love the Dixie Chicks music, um, you know, they were very successful in country music. And 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 then you know Natalie Maines is in London and says, "We're ashamed that the president comes from Texas." And then all of a sudden, death threats, uh, breaking up records, and even though they loved their music, it's just because she had an opinion that was different. We have to live together even if we don't agree with each other. And I'm glad that the Dixie Chicks on their next album put out Not Ready to Make Nice, which is how yeah, they because- felt. How they felt after a lot of their fans just said, we still love your music, but how dare you criticize the government? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and talk about turning. I mean, it was just like with the Dixie Chicks, it was just like with John Lennon. I mean, they're they're hot. They everybody loves them. People are crazy about them. They're everywhere. Mm-hmm. They're 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 on top of the world. And it's like just a snap. <laughs> everybody it goes the other way. Yeah, and that yeah. Is you're scary. talking about you're talking about John Lennon when he said, um, "Oh, it looks like we're bigger than Jesus." And he told it. He said that to um, uh, a reporter who was a friend of his in London, a female writer named Maureen Cleaves. 
And, you know, she just wrote it in the article, and nobody in the U.K. thought anything of it. And then when it got reprinted here in America, people got really angry because you don't, you don't joke about Jesus, you know. And he didn't understand culturally that that's something you, you don't say in the U.S., whereas you could say it in England and no one would bat an eyelash. So um, inevitably he did apologize but um, that's a fascinating aspect to this. You write a song, and one country or one area or one continent will get it, and another one takes offense at it because they're just culturally different. Which is why, in my opinion, you should listen to music from everywhere. You should listen to music not only in all genres, but from all over the world. And find out what other people are writing songs about. Find out what's going on in other countries. Maybe I'll end this whole diatribe here, madam, by saying maybe one of the best messages <laughs> music is power can give anybody is that it gives you an opportunity to learn about other people. You know, it gives you yeah, the yeah. chance to learn what other people are concerned with. And what they're going through, which may be different th- from your society. And it's certainly not like we don't have the opportunity. I mean, they always say, you know, travel can broaden you and, and you know, change your opinions about things. But you can't always afford to travel. But today, you got yeah. what, if you got Sirius XM radio, how many channels do you have? And what do you have access to? And uh, YouTube, I mean, you know, I've kept YouTube on and uh, – I gotta admit, I, I got a little. I got very small-minded for a while back, um, especially after 2000. I was like, you know, I didn't want to listen to anything, but I listened to a lot of swing to the people I like. I listened mm-hmm. to, you know, Joe Beam or or Anita O'Day, something like that, or you know, but nice. And then maybe some Brit stuff like Paul Weller. But I thought, no, I don't like any modern music. La 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 la. But then I started trying different things. You know how YouTube will pull. I thought, oh, that's good. I was a real idiot to be such a snob. You know, a You're not an idiot. I love crunk. <laughs> You're not an idiot. Snob. You're entitled to your taste. <laughs> and you know what? Taste <laughs> changes. Taste changes. Look, think about hip-hop music. And, of course, in, in Music yeah. is Power, we're, I've got stuff on NWA and Grandmaster Flash and Public Enemy. There is a real aggression in hip-hop music. And one of the most important things, in my opinion, that hip-hop can do and has done is to talk about things that are unfair in our society. Um, talk about, say, police brutality or you know, inequality between the races, that sort of thing. And you know, that's, that's great. Music can be a messenger within the group of people that listen to it. And some days, I've got to tell you, madam... I'm in a cranky mood here in L.A. I'm just, you know, <laughs> pissed off about everything. And I'll listen to something that's angry, and it reflects my mood. And other days, I'm pissed off, and I go, I need to calm down. I need to listen to something very lovely and sweet and mellow. So, you know, music, even whether it's social conscious or not, can just soothe you when you, when you feel tense when you're upset, when you're uncertain about the future. And heck, that's the way we're all living these days, and music serves a very important purpose. 
Yeah, definitely. Now more than ever, true, we do need it. And, yeah, you're right. Hip-hop made a lot of statements. And, um, and when you mentioned Grandmaster Flash, like the song The Message. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that wasn't a song I knew until about a year ago because when I'd be at certain studios in Atlanta uh, working, they would be playing that a lot. And I go, oh, well, this, is, this is, you know. And then I started yeah. listening to it more. It made me go, it made me look it up. It made me look up the lyrics. Yes. Well, you know, that's what they would say is old school, old school, quote unquote, rap. You know, we use hip hop as a term generally now. But um, they were one of the first groups that talked about what's it like to be in an urban area and and to be African-American. This is our concern. We want to talk about something other than love and sexuality and and, uh, you know, just everyday type subjects for songs and it really gave you a look inside also um white lines was a great song about instead of glorifying dealing in coke say for example it talked about you know how does cocaine destroy a whole community not just the lives of people who who overdose on it or get caught or get shot dealing but but how does it control a whole group of people to all be using a drug and having no future. And that's when music gets really interesting, when it sees the big picture. My pal Frank Zappa, who I worked for, saw the big picture in a crazy song called I'm the Slime. And he talked about television and social control and, you know, go out and buy something. Don't actually change something in society just go out and spend your money and buy something. And I'm the Slime's a great song about how we are controlled sometimes. Um, much like oh, Grandmaster yeah. Flash. Yeah, talk more about because um, that was that was my my next thing I was going to ask you about was Frank Zappa and then especially I am the Slime. I mean, and they did a live version of that on Saturday Night Live. Did <laughs> yes. it with a chalkboard where you had the lyrics? Yes, yes, and I don't know how they rigged it in the studio in New York City, but they showed a TV monitor that you know, showed the band. So literally you're watching the band and then the camera goes to a TV monitor of the band and they have something that looks like ooze just coming down over the screen of the TV monitor. And it was hilarious. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how they did it, but it was just crazy. Um, yeah. And I, again, it's important to me because I work with Frank for six months on a TV show oh. we were trying to create called Night School. And he was a brilliant guy, and he put his money where his mouth was. You know, he, he stopped in the 80s the, the attempt to start charging additional money for music and tapes and have it go to um, the recording industry, um, and also the censorship of lyrics. He was at the forefront of the battle that stopped that. Mm-hmm. Um, can you imagine today if you went to a store to – to, you know, I don't know, buy a flash drive or something to put music on. And they said, oh, yeah, well, you, you can buy the flash drive, but we have to charge you additionally because you're putting music on it. I mean, that's literally <laughs> what the Congress of the United States was trying to do in the 80s. So um, he was, kind of, he was yeah. kind of a hero. He, he was wacky. 
and he was a little effete and arrogant, very bright guy. But at the end of the day, like I said, he put his money where his mouth was, and he, he stood up for all consumers, and he stood up for freedom of the press, freedom of the musician, freedom of the composer. Just the, um, let me just read just one one verse out of On the Slime for anybody who might not know. About oh, it. I can't imagine. Please do. The the the, uh, the I think it's the middle verses. I may be vile and pernicious, but you can't look away. I make you think I'm delicious with the stuff that I say. I'm the best you can get. Have you guessed, Have you me, guessed yet? me yet? On the slime <laughs> oozing out. From your TV set, <laughs> it is it is so fun. And again, it's it's instead of yelling at people and going, "You're stupid. Why don't you get up and do something?" It's using humor to make people kind of chuckle and then think, hey, "You know what? He's right." How how often do we check out of reality and go, uh, "I'm I'm I'm depressed. I'm just going to binge watch a TV show." and not do anything about making the world a little bit better. So, you know, you need to do a little bit of everything. It's, I'm fascinated in Music is Power that some people, <clears throat> unlike Zappa, would just do one song, but one great song about something about society. And that was great. You know, you don't have to spend your whole career doing it. Um, just, you know, and in hip-hop music, there, there's a, a section at the end of Music is Power where I talk about the future of music. And I think we're in pretty good hands. You know, I talked about in the last few years people like Kendrick Lamar and what, what he's doing in terms of hip-hop. And, you know, Lady Gaga, who's this huge star, wrote a beautiful song um, about uh, Trayvon Martin being shot down. Um there, you know, Barbara Streisand of all people wrote a song about Trump lying to people. You know, it's fascinating um, because when when people care a lot, it doesn't matter what kind of music they make; they have to do something that says something. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's a greater variety of people creating socially conscious music today than ever was before. And um yeah, you know oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh I was just sort of summarizing the end of Music is Power where I I list as many people as I can think of who are having an impact today. Eminem, um the the mm-hmm. BET Music Awards. He did a wonderful a cappella rap. Yeah. Um a lot of people think that he's you know, he like Lamar um, are are two of the best you know writers of hip hop lyrics who who've ever lived, and a lot of their stuff mm-hmm. is about here's what we're going through, here's what America's like, mm-hmm. how can we make it better? Um, and they're still terrific writers. People don't feel lectured; people respond to it. You know, when um, I was reading the uh, review. Of music is power, and by the way, if you're just listening, if you're riding in your car and just turned in, yes, I'm talking with Brad Schreiber, uh, writer, producer, screenwriter, actor, everything. Um, <laughs> bon vivant. You can do everything. 
Yeah, bon vivant. Uh, uh, and his book, Music is Power, Popular Songs, Social Justice, and the Will to Change. And I was looking earlier today at uh, a review in Music Connection magazine where it says, uh, they say, Music is Power documents the history of protest songs about war, racism, sexism, ecological destruction, and more. Author Schreiber takes a wide lens to the protest song, examining the ways different artists approach the style. The book goes over artists and songs you'd expect to find on any protest list, such as Dead Kennedys, Bob Dylan, Gil Scott Heron, while also re-examining classic bands and artists like James Brown and Black Sabbath and their ability to transcend the limitations of the music industry to deliver powerful political messages. Yeah, that that's like a, a, a high wire act in itself. Sometimes I would think. Yeah. You know, to get to yeah, get the but, message out within certain contexts. Yeah, you're right. You're right, and it's we go back to Marvin Gaye in a way, madam. You know, he had to convince Barry Gordy. Uh, basically, he threatened to leave the label. Um, and Barry Gordy agreed, and what's going on was a huge hit. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, people could say, hey, you can do socially conscious soul and R&B and mix them together. It, it will still work. You know, obviously, music is both a business and an art form. And when you only treat any art form mostly as a business and, and try and calculate what will sell, you usually fail. Because you can't keep doing the, the same thing over and over again in TV, in film, in theater, in music. And it's people with fresh voices and fresh ideas who become the surprise hits. You know? um, so that's something that you know, Marvin Gaye taught us. You know, stand up for yourself. You know, if, if you're at home and you're working on a demo and people are saying, ah, it's too angry, well, find the person who gets it. You know, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of DIY in our society, as you know, more than ever, people have the ability to create their own music and distribute it. Um, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying that the tools are inexpensive. And that's what's exciting to me. You can can hear stuff that you, you never heard before on Spotify and go, wow, I just heard this, this group or this person from a town just on the other side of the country and i love it i'm so glad that i'm going to tell my friends about it and that's how people become successful by people listening and going wow you've got to hear this yeah so you know i I hope that's a pep Mm -hmm. talk i hope that's a pep talk for everybody out there who's struggling you know as a musician and a songwriter and and a creative person and saying you know when am i going to break through it just it takes an incredible amount of work. It takes a little bit of luck, but it takes more hard work than it takes luck. You know, I, I've got more books mm-hmm. in my head than the twelve or thirteen I've had published. You just you go, okay, that's not working. I'm going to try this idea. Okay, they want this one. You know, it's a numbers game. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's true. And I hope that's an encouragement to your, to your listeners who love music and make it themselves. I think it is because I I think you're right. There is um, we you know we do have the ability now to do things. You do have to just keep on. Go to somebody that listens. You know, uh, I might have said this before to you when um, 
What, what was it you were, you were just saying about if you're writing something and some people don't get it, go to somebody that yeah. maybe you respect as a songwriter or friend to write it. When um, when yeah. I took guitar lessons, I remember the teacher I had said, when you're ready to play in front of somebody, when you when you get ready to do that, mm. make sure you play the first time. Do it in front of somebody who is a musician that you think mm. is good, that you respect. Somebody, because if they're not a music, if they're not then all they're going to hear is that you don't sound like the record, whereas yeah. a musician will hear how far you've come. And that may not be a good analogy to what you said, but so don't don't be afraid to show it to somebody that <laughs> that you respect because they'll see where you've yeah. come. Yeah, how no, far. that's a that's a terrific point um, for the creative people out there. Is um, who knows better about what you put into your craft of songwriting and and playing instruments than somebody who does it themselves. It's not always easy to find a mentor or somebody who will help you. But when you find that person, you've got to treat them real good. You know, take them out to dinner mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, do, do something extra special for them. Because good advice and putting in a good word for you, there's nothing more important in terms of creating your future as a creative artist. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't have many people like that, by the way, till I became a consultant for Chris Vogler who wrote the the writer's journey which is a great book on all kinds of writing and he was kind of a mentor to me and he taught me about all kinds of myths and stories from different cultures and all of a sudden my writing got better because I started thinking in different ways and creating different kinds of characters Um, so he really expanded my horizons that's that's interesting, isn't that? That sounds kind of like how uh, I think. Isn't that how? And, and you wrote a book on Hendrix, so you're the man to ask this. Um, yeah. He said that when you write certain songs, like he would come up with a story, like, "Well, there's people on Mars and they're doing this, and somebody has war, <laughs> and this is what they do, or whatever." So he created yeah. the whole world, and then wrote about one part of it. That sounds like what you're talking yeah. about. And, and like I said, you, you wrote the book on Hendrix, so. You tell well, me. there have been many people who've written books on on Jimmy, but um, Steve Roby, who's a great researcher, gave me more information than you can believe about Jimmy. And then I did some research myself, and then we put together becoming Jimi Hendrix. And he had one of the hardest childhoods you can imagine. His mother died early. She might have been beaten to death by her her lover. She was separated from. Jimmy's father, who had a grade school education and barely made a living, and they were in Seattle. The lights, the the electricity wasn't paid. There's no food in the refrigerator at times. He and his brother Leon would walk the neighborhood, and the neighborhood in Seattle in the 50s was like equal amounts of Asian, black, and white people, and everybody was friendly to everybody else. They were very open-minded. And when they saw those two, you know, black kids walking around, they said, "Have you eaten today?" And Jimmy'd say, "No. Come on in here. Let me let me give you something." That's how rough his life was. So he was very appreciative and open, mm. and he loved every kind of music there is. That guy could hear something and instantly play it back to you, whether it was acid rock or country or folk. Um, he just was amazing. He didn't. He didn't say, "Oh, I don't like that kind of music." He listened to everything. 
he and Billy Cox, who was the, the drummer and friend of his when he was in the Army in Nashville, you know. Um, um, anyway, they listened to classical music records just to see what they could get out of it. What's the feel of this Beethoven concerto? We're not writing classical music, but how did he do that moment that we both love? So they found a way to learn about music by listening to every kind of it. And, you know, we didn't get a more creative guitarist than Jimi Hendrix. No, we didn't. Well, that's <laughs> firing. Story. Yeah. And, and that yeah. is a testimony, as we say in the South. That's a testimony yeah. that uh, <laughs> he went someplace people didn't expect. And what it did for him as a guitarist and a, and a songwriter and a yeah, well, for sure. Since we're talking about Jimmy and, and you're in Atlanta and, and the environs, you know, we should say something about how Jimmy used to tour with little Richard, who we just lost not too long ago. And, and they did the, what was called the Chitlin Circuit, really small rural places throughout the South. And let me tell you something. The players that Jimmy played with were damn good players, and he had to learn fast to keep up. And I think that he became the great guitarist that he is not in Seattle, but in touring the South and and playing with these guys. And then going back to, you know, Nashville and being the, part of the house band at the Club Morocco. And those guys were amazing. I mean, you could just throw a stone and hit five great guitarists, you know. And so Jimmy went, oh, man, I've got to up my game. And that's where he had the greatest amount of learning. A little that's more like inspiration get, for y'all. You got to get get good or go home. Yeah, and he was yeah was with exceptional players. I'm so glad you said that because this week I've seen pictures of of Hendrix with uh, Little Richard that have been showing up on on Facebook mm. and so forth, and uh, and just what an extraordinary show that would have yeah. been to see. I mean, just so exceptional. Yeah. Even even in their beginnings, you know. Yeah, this is, of course, before Jimmy was writing his own music. And, you know, he'd write, you know, interesting sociological songs like Are You Experienced? That wasn't just about taking drugs. It was about being free in your mind to accept all people. But, you know, when he played in, in Little Richard's band, Madam, um, he still wanted to be a free spirit. And everybody had to dress alike. You remember those bands, right? And yeah. they all wore... They all wore white socks, and sometimes Jimmy would go, the hell with it, I'm going to wear red socks today. And little Richard would see Jimmy in his red socks and go, Hendrix, $5, I'm finding you $5. Every time you're out that didn't match, once Jimmy found a chain, you know, like a regular link chain, and he used it as a belt, and he went on, and little Richard said, Hendrix, $5, that's not your belt. <laughs> really little richard would find all the members of the band or if you took a if you took a solo too long five dollars but he was he was an amazing showman wasn't he oh, yeah Lord. yes richard, indeed. richard peniman and then he did his gospel oh album, yeah too. big fan of gospel yeah whatever <laughs> Whatever he did, yeah, was was just uh, astounding. 
<laughs> and nothing like it. So uh, so don't forget, folks, listen, I have been so grateful to have you here, Brad Schreiber, you know, twice oh, in, in thank you. one year. Um, I don't know whether it, I, I'm just that lucky or it's just that the, the uh, isolation has made you stir crazy <laughs> enough to, to say yes to me a second time. But, I'm uh, happy. Thank you I'm happy so to much. be on your show. <laughs> No, it's real nice. I'm delighted to have you. Yeah, yeah, and And uh, you know, I I was just going to say, you know, while you while you close up here, I I was just going to say that you know, it's really inspiring to hear from people. So, I have a website. It's my name, BradSchreiber. dot com or Brash Cyber also works, and I love hearing from people who read my work and. And sometimes have played with these people. I've heard from musicians who've played with Jimmy and other people in Music is Power. I love getting emails from folks, so I encourage that. All right. Well, listen, I'm going to be sharing your your um, your website address and uh, both of them, the Brad Schreiber and Brash Cyber, on all of my social media for Madam Perry and for Jennifer Perry. And... Uh, Brad, you know, you can call me Jen, Jen, Jennifer. Um, I said Jen twice because there's J-E-N and J-E-N-N, okay? Uh, anytime. <laughs> or as we say here, hon. But, uh, yes, thank you so much. So I will be sharing all your social media so people can uh, find you everywhere because some people tell me they listen while they run or they're in their car and yeah. they don't have to worry about writing it down. I'll share it. Get this book, Music is Power, Popular Songs, Social Justice, and the Will to Change. It's published by Rutgers University Press. Find people there. And you can also get it on Amazon and wherever good books are sold. Uh, also, this Becoming Jimi Hendrix. Um, there are so many great shows, I mean, so many great books from uh, Brad Schreiber, uh, Revolutions you. and the Patty Hearst Kidnapping. I remember reading that every day in the newspaper when I got home from school. I followed oh, yeah. that story. That's and if you think you know story. everything, oh, yeah. If we're going to have to – one day, if, you're, if I'm lucky, you will do a show just on, on that. And the, Because if you think you know the story about the Patty yeah. Hearst Kidnapping, you don't know anything about – Mind Control and the Secret History of Donald DeFreeze and the SLA, Symbionese Liberation Army. And yeah. SC, I'm not even going to tell you. I'm not even going to tell you, but you don't know the whole story. It's even wilder than you can imagine. And believe me, this is a true story that's a whole lot more exciting than anything you're going to find on Netflix or Amazon. Thank you, Jen. It's wonderful. Thank you. Wonderful to be talking to you and lots of love and health to Georgia. Stay safe and be well and be positive. You You as well. All right. And you you as well, my dear friend, and much health and love and and success to you and all of you.